1: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, episode 17. A peaceful land, a quiet people... Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we looked at The Incident, the capstone of Charles I's humbling PR campaign to the Kingdom of Scotland. The King spent three months in his ancestral kingdom, and during this visit, he accepted all of the constitutional changes which the Covenanters pressed upon him, and which had been proven on the field of battle. It was... Humiliating, and it didn't win Charles the friends he'd hoped for. So, when a conspiracy to seize three of the leading Scottish nobles, the Marquesses of Argyll and of Hamilton, and Hamilton's brother, the Earl of Lanark, began to form among his courtiers and army officers, and Charles found out about it, he didn't put a stop to it. Exactly how involved the King was in the plot is unclear, but at a minimum, he knew about it, and he was happy for it to take place. But, as always, someone talked. Someone always talks. Some of those invited to the plot went straight to the Earl of Leven, Alexander Leslie, who had led the Army of the Covenant to victory in both of the Bishop's Wars, and told him everything. The whole conspiracy leaked like a sieve, and on the day of the planned coup, the targeted nobles fled Edinburgh. But, as we finished up, something else stole all the political attention. Because on the 22nd of October, 1641, Sir Philem O'Neill captured Charlemont Fort in County Armagh. And for the first time since the Nine Years' War ended in 1603, peace in Ireland was shattered. Or at least, that's how it's traditionally been viewed. Contemporaries writing at the time and afterwards agreed that the rebellion appeared as if out of nowhere. Richard Bellings, an Irish Catholic lawyer, described Irish society on the eve of the rebellion as perfectly incorporated and enjoying the fruits of peace in a very notable increase of plenty. Likewise, Sir John Temple, a New English Protestant lawyer, described an Ireland where All men sat pleasantly, enjoying the comfortable fruits of their own labours, without the least thoughts or apprehension of either tumults or other troubles. In England, the clerk of the Privy Council, Edward Nicholas, had in September, described Ireland as very quiet and in good order. Just a few weeks before O'Neill would capture the fort, Nicholas received a letter from Temple saying that the kingdom gives nothing worth your knowledge. Now, Temple's letter might have been true if he was only referring to the Pale, the area around Dublin, and only here, and only at a very surface level. Because the idea that Ireland was an idyllic and peaceful paradise, and that this paradise was ruined by the 1641 rising, is a myth. We'll get onto why these depictions of a peaceful island of Ireland are false in a moment, because we should first try and understand why contemporaries, both Catholic and Protestant, New English, Gaelic, Old English, appeared to collaborate in spinning this fiction. Partly, and this is shared for most of the contemporary writers, is that most of these men were of the middling sort or higher. They were landowners, planters, merchants, lawyers. Their personal experience in Ireland was prosperous. That they were not in the majority of experiences is a secondary concern. The rents were higher and being paid, never mind the many who could not afford them. But, as Miholo Shukru puts it, the timing and the intended audiences of our sources are the most plausible reasons. For New English Protestants like Temple, their motives are more immediately obvious. The rising led to the deaths of many Protestant colonists, and threatened the system which made the New English so very wealthy. From their perspective, it makes sense that they would exaggerate the peace and prosperity which Plantation had brought to Ireland. After all, they benefited from it. Overemphasising the tranquility of the kingdom, and the friendship between the ethnic and religious divides, only made the subsequent rising and the violence that came with it even more horrifying. See how wonderful Irish society was, they said, and how villainous the Catholics are for ruining it. So what was the intention of Catholic writers for insisting that pre-Rebellion Ireland was a peaceful place? For those writing after the Restoration, the aim appears to have been to emphasise that the 1641 Rising was an outlier, a mistake, a moment of unusual rebellion, to emphasise that the Catholic Irish were not inherently rebellious and could-be-trusted subjects of the Crown, provided they enjoyed good governance. The 1641 Rising was an aberration brought about by a perfect storm of troublemakers, a weak Dublin government, and the wider crisis of the Three Kingdoms. So this helps explain why this myth of Irish peace took root. Now let's look at why it is a myth, or at the minimum, why it's a highly flexible depiction of reality. First, some stats, because everyone loves stats. David Edwards, in his chapter in the Cambridge History of Ireland, states that between 1610 and 1641, so between the beginning of intense Stuart Plantation and the Rebellion, a period of 31 years, 23 of those years saw at least one Rebellion. Those periods without a Rebellion, the years sixteen twelve to thirteen, sixteen twenty one to twenty three, sixteen thirty, 1630, sixteen thirty three, and sixteen forty, are spread out, and at most are only a couple of years in length. Ulster, though stereotyped as the rebellious province, what with the Nine Years' War and the sixteen forty one rebellion, was joined by the other provinces just as regularly. All of Munster saw rebellion over these years, and half of Connaught and Leinster did likewise. Drilling down to the county level, every single coastal county, with the noted exceptions of counties Dublin, Clare and Louth endured rebellions. Some of these rebellions were small scale, but several grew to encompass entire regions of the kingdom. From 1639, Lord Deputy Wentworth had invoked martial law due to concerns about the Scottish crisis, and admitted privately that Ireland was becoming increasingly hard to control, despite his army of 4,000 men being twice that available to James VI and I's Lord Deputies. The problems, he admitted, were not new, and had been present since before he came to Ireland. Now imagine if we'd been talking about rebellions in Essex or Argyle every few years while we covered James's reign. We'd hardly view England or Scotland as kingdoms at peace, but, as in so many other ways, Ireland was different to its British sister kingdoms. Oshukru depicts a kingdom in a constant state of low-level warfare, while Edwards describes Wentworth's rule succinctly. The aura of unassailable government power that Wentworth projected was a brilliant contrivance, little else. Still, it was a contrivance that played a valuable role in balancing the factions within Irish society. Though members of all factions collaborated to bring down the Lord Deputy, once Wentworth, by then Stratford of course, was dead, that balance began to tip decisively in the favour of the New English. So instead of a kingdom at peace, we have an Ireland which was a volcano of division and unrest. The long-term causes of the rebellion, and indeed all these other lesser-known rebellions, are very familiar to listeners of Pax Britannica, and so we won't retread that path. However, there were important short-term causes of the 1641 rising. Firstly, remember that in spring 1640, Lord Deputy Strafford had summoned an Irish parliament to provide taxation for the coming war with the Covenanters. This parliament had obediently voted four subsidies of £45,000 to fund an army of 9,000 mostly Catholic Irish, with Stratford promising to address their grievances in a future session. Stratford then returned to England, the Second Bishop's War kicked off, and Stratford ended up in two pieces on Tower Hill within the year. We've heard all about this. But Stratford left behind two very important outstanding issues in Ireland a Parliament which had been promised that its grievances would be addressed, and a large army trained and ready to be used. Both had been controlled by Strafford, but he was dead, and before that he had been absent from Ireland. In June 1640, while the Army of the Covenant was nearing its victory at Newburn, the Irish Parliament reconvened, and the Commons established a series of committees. These were made up of both Catholics and Protestants, and looked at various issues. One examined the discrimination against Galway proprietors, another summoned representatives from those boroughs which Wentworth had recently disenfranchised, another launched an investigation into the clergy, while another took aim at the Court of High Commission. What's interesting about these committees is not only that these were multi-faith bodies, but they were considering grievances at the lobbying of multiple factions of Irish society. The Gaelic Irish and Old English were keenly interested in the disenfranchised boroughs, the Presbyterians in the clergy, and everyone, everyone hated the Court of High Commission. Stratford's deputy, while he was away, Sir Christopher Wansford, prorogued Parliament to delay these worrying events. But when Parliament reconvened in October 1640, these committees went straight back to work. This work culminated in the humble and just remonstrance, which was approved unanimously. The remonstrance complained about the four subsidies granted earlier in the year, and catalogued them alongside all the other sums which Ireland had been made to pay since the rule of Stratford's predecessor – Viscount Falkland. The current economic situation, which the remonstrants described as extreme and universal poverty, had combined with a quote, general and apparent decay of trade, end quote, and the infliction of the subsidies had brought many quote, very near to ruin and destruction. End quote. Keeping in mind that these are the complaints of a very select minority of the kingdom, the few who met the property requirements to vote and to stand for election, so they aren't speaking for the average Irish person. Also, everyone always thinks they're paying too much tax. However, there was a significant economic downturn affecting Ireland as well as the other Stuart kingdoms, so these aren't unbelievable complaints. The Remonstrants also complained about Stratford's arbitrary style of governance and his lack of respect for the law and for parliaments and demanded that Ireland be governed by the fundamental laws of England. Now, where have we heard that before? It also quoted the Great Charter for the Liberties of England, meaning Magna Carta. While much of this would not sound out of place in the English Parliament, the Irish Parliament had another arrow in their quiver of grievances. The Graces. Now more than a decade overdue, these reforms were desperately wanted by Irish Catholics, and they had been repeatedly dangled in front of them ever since in order to squeeze more cash from them. Enough was enough. The remonstrance was passed unanimously, and a commission of thirteen, made up of Old English, New English, and a Gaelic Irish MP, were dispatched to England to present their remonstrance to that parliament and to the king. This is the commission which collaborated in the downfall of Strafford. The remonstrance was joined by the schedule of grievances in February 1641, which echoed many of the earlier documents' complaints, though this was passed by the Lords. The objective of the Irish Parliament was achieved in May 1641, when Strafford was executed. Percival Maxwell quotes a prophetic comment from a contemporary, Sir Philip Percival. I remember I was in England when the Duke of Buckingham fell, whom many men thought the only cause of all the evils, but those that were of that opinion did not find it so afterwards. In other words, many problems had been blamed on the Duke of Buckingham, but after his death the problems remained. The same would be true for Stratford. The remarkable collaboration between the different religious and ethnic interests in Ireland had been held together solely by their shared hatred of Stratford. With their victory achieved, they lost their only uniting influence. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich.
2: We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the
1: catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag...
2: Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story.
1: Strafford was dead. His deputy and most obvious successor, Sir Christopher Wandsford, had likewise died in November 1640 of a brief fever. In their absence, the governance of Ireland fell to the two Lords Justices. By the time of Stratford's execution, these men were Sir John Bollet's and Sir William Parsons. While there was no Lord Deputy present in Ireland, these men made up the kingdom's executive, and so it was to these men that Charles wrote to on the 3rd of April 1641. The letter arrived in Ireland on the 14th, in the care of two of the 13 commissioners, and it was a bombshell. Charles ordered the Lord's Justices to confirm the graces and grant the other concessions. Effectively, it announced the end of plantation. This horrified the Lords Justices and the Irish Privy Council. If they confirmed the graces, they would drastically reduce the amount of Irish land that could be planted, and so the Irish government would lose access to a vital source of income. Of course, so would the New English on the Privy Council. Combined with general anti-Catholic prejudice, particularly from the infamously avaricious Lord Justice Parsons, the Dublin government did their best to drag their official feet. They were aided in this by Poyning's Law, but the parliamentary representatives did their best to counter this by successfully pressuring them to send the draft bills to England before declaring their grievances, which was not the traditional order of things. For the next few months, the Lords Justices, the Irish Parliamentary Committees, and the authorities in England debated points of constitutional law, and I won't be getting into all of that. One notable moment was when an Ulster Scot, who had been imprisoned under Stratford, appealed to the English House of Lords in the summer. This appeal came when the English and Scots were negotiating their treaty, and so this was something of a diplomatic incident and couldn't be put off. So the English House of Lords summoned everyone who had been involved in that Scots imprisonment in order to get to the bottom of it. But this implied complete superiority of the English Parliament over the Kingdom of Ireland. Both the Irish Parliament and the Lords Justices balked at this implication and refused to attend. The process of approving the Graces was again put on hold until the issue was over, partly at the instigation of the English lords who sought to punish the uppity Irish. Eventually, negotiations restored the process, and the bills which would enact the graces were produced and dispatched to Ireland by the end of August. When the bills arrived in Dublin, Parsons complained bitterly that Charles had been too generous for too little, Parsons and his allies had time to fix this, as the Irish Parliament had been prorogued for a summer recess on the 7th of August. The next session was due to begin in November, but by October, Charles had been convinced of the need to extend the prorogation into 1642. By the time his decision had reached Ireland, though, the rebellion had already begun. Once again, The Graces had been so close. The documents were there, they were on someone's desk in Dublin, they only needed to be acted on. But, once again, private and state interests in plantation, both English and Irish, and suspicion of and prejudice to Catholics, had prevented the Graces. As Percival Maxwell puts it, Bills had reached Ireland that, once passed, would not only give security to existing estates, but also diminish the sapping of old English political power through land transfer. This had been attained through a bond between landowners of both faiths, and even men like Cork seem to have supported it. We cannot tell how long this bond would have lasted in the absence of the rebellion, but we may observe the mutual reinforcement between the gentry and the lawyers as they strove for a definition of Ireland's status as a realm on a par with Charles's other two. With hindsight, we can see that the failure to secure the passage of the Acts during the summer proved fatal. Charles's decision, and he bore ultimate responsibility, to postpone the November sitting meant that, once more, the settlement over security of land tenure was delayed, if not withdrawn. We'll hear more about Lord Justices Parsons and Bollets in the future, because for reasons we're about to get into, they're going to stay in their position for some time to come. Because, while a new Lord Deputy will be appointed, he will never set foot in Ireland while in office. That lucky individual will be Robert Sidney, 2nd Earl of Leicester. Leicester had spent the previous few years on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan, I, I, France. He'd returned to England in May 1641, with the falls of both Stratford and Lord presenting an opportunity and removing an opponent, respectively. In June, he was made the Lord Deputy of Ireland, but he remained in England for the next two months. At which point, you might imagine that he'd set off on his journey to take up his new position, but you'd be wrong to so imagine. Instead, Charles sent his new Lord Deputy of Ireland back to France. The consequences for this delay were enormous. Leicester was, like Strafford before him, an outsider to Irish politics. He could have played off the factions against each other and continued the balancing act which Stratford had managed for so long. He was a talented diplomat, That was, after all, why Charles had sent him back to Paris. And these skills were in vital need in Ireland. Leicester could have won Catholic leaders, both Old English and Gaelic Irish, back to the crown, or at least won enough trust that the delay to the graces could pass without incident. Leicester could have been a brilliant Lord Deputy. He could have also been a terrible Lord Deputy. But we'll never know, because he never actually visits Ireland. However, the absence of any Lord Deputy at all, good or bad, was a terrible weakness for the legitimacy of the Dublin government, almost in the same way as a regency or a minority causes instability. As the King's representative, Leicester would have been able to stand above the factions, or at least more than the Lord's Justices, who were themselves established New English figures. Parsons and Bolais were, in the eyes of the Gaelic and Anglo-Irish, part of the problem, they were planters, they couldn't be trusted to operate for the benefit of the whole kingdom. In any case, Leicester only returned to England from France at the start of October, just days away from O'Neill's capture of Charlemont Fort. He would never visit the kingdom he was now Lord Deputy of, despite his efforts to win the position. The rapidly deteriorating situation in England would tie him up there, until he resigned the Lord Deputyship in November 1643. Next time, we will cover the events of the Irish Rebellion in detail. What happened? Who led the Rising? And what did they hope to achieve? And if you're wondering what on earth happened to that Irish army I mentioned, well, you certainly aren't the only person concerned about them. Remember that I'm giving a talk at the Intelligent Speech Conference in April alongside a whole host of brilliant, brilliant podcasters. I'll be talking about Charles II's escape from Worcester after the disastrous battle there. But it was disastrous for him, it was brilliant for Cromwell. But either way, Charles then had to flee across England, back and forth, hiding in bushes and in trees, staying in priest holes, hiding with sympathetic families. At one point, he had to quite brazenly stride past a group of parliamentary soldiers and just hope that they didn't think the guy who kind of looked like the face on a coin was actually the king. It's an incredible story. It's a fantastic story, and I can't wait to talk about it. So if you're interested in that or any of the other brilliant producers that are going to be giving talks, then go to intelligentspeechconference.com. You can buy a ticket with a 10% discount if you use the code PAX at checkout. If you're listening to this episode... More or less as it comes out, you will still have access to the early bird price, which is currently $20. So you've got your early bird discount and then a 10% discount on top of that. It's one brilliant bargain. So that again is intelligencespeechconference.com, And if you use the code PAX at checkout, you'll get a 10% discount. Thank you to my House of Lords, including, but not limited to, my royal favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin. The Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner. They are joined by Dave Cardegna, or Cardena, the Earl of Huntley, Brendan of the Barony of Nelson Vice, and Ivory of the Barony of Johnson. Remember that you can join their ranks at patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Every patron gets an ad-free feed, and the higher tiers get extra bonuses. If you've enjoyed this episode, please recommend it to a friend, or take the time to leave a happy, positive review on iTunes, or wherever you hear your podcasts. These are some of the best ways to help a podcast grow and to support a podcaster. And don't quote me on this. Please don't quote me on this. But I'm sure that rushing to go and tell a friend about a history podcast you really like is a valid reason to travel in the current circumstances. But again, please don't quote me on that. I don't want to end up in court. (laughs) Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interfill music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and as always, to you for listening.